So Numbers chapter 26 down to chapter 31, we are moving through these next sections and it should be kept in mind as it is in many places in scripture um, that they're not necessarily arranged chronologically, which I know that, that really bothers all of you engineers out there terribly. But, um, you know, this, there's a lot of this is, is, is put it laid out topically and thematically. And so you may think, well, this seems like it ought to be over here. But you, this is not a contradiction in any level. Um, it's not trying to say, and this is a chronological order. It's just it's put out there in that way. We're going to see the kindness of the Lord to a group of sisters um, whose father had passed away with no sons. They're going to divide the land. Who's going to get the land? Well, these ladies living in an ancient, you know, patriarchal uh, kind of culture, are they going to be passed over? So this is going to be a question. We're going to see Moses um, begin to phase out and his replacement is going to step up. We're going to see a follow-up to the, um, the, the seducing that took place uh, with Balaam and Balak, there's going to be a war that's going to be fought, um, and it's going to be a very bloody war. You'll, you will read this. You'll see how, how fierce it was. So that's a little bit what's going on. We're going to have some numbers that we're going to be dealing with, how many you know, sheep, how many goats, how much money, how, much, how many people, and that is because this is called the, what? the book of what? Numbers, so don't be surprised about that. I'm going to be doing um, a fair amount of uh, summarizing. Um, I won't put you through the torture of listening to me pronounce 40 names I can't. Um, You can do that on your own and have fun with it. But we are in chapter 26, and um, this is the second time that the nation is going to be counted. So think about this. They came out of Egypt. They had the number and it was counted. And then everybody that was an adult ended up dying off except for Joshua and Caleb. So what does that do to the numbers? What ha- what's, you know, maybe some of you read ahead and you know what the answer is. But just as a thought, what do you think? Well, if you look at verse 51, it actually tells us these are those who were numbered of the children of Israel. 601,730. And that is, if you compare it to Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, where uh, that first census was done, you'll see that the number is 1,820 fewer. So really, it's pretty much the same. There's very little that has happened as, as they, that generation has died off, children have been born, and the numbers are relatively the same. So this 601, 730,000, it is a huge number. Um, This is not even the entire congregation. This is the the men. And so you're dealing with a a group of people of of two million. This is the estimated amount. You got the women, you have children. So you can easily get up to two million. We talked about this in the beginning. We even made a passing reference to it in our last study of how this large number has caused many to wonder whether or not this is accurate. And it drives me nuts to read some of this stuff. I'm not going to read it to you. But, you know, you start going through this, and they're like, well, maybe this was just hyperbole. So we have Scripture speaking in hyperbole, but we're, we're dealing with a number like 601,730. Okay. 
that's 1,820 less. So if it's a, a number that's given to hyperbole, and I know that I'm writing and I'm trying to show that God is doing more than he's really doing and we are the descendants of Abraham and we're gonna be more than the sand of the sea. Maybe when I write the second one, if I'm given over to hyperbole, I might say more rather than what? Less. It's just, this is the thing. But why do they say that? They say this because the archeological evidence that has been found, the history that has been recorded and been preserved, would, would, would lead them to an idea that the numbers um, would be much smaller than this. And so they make these reasons based on history and archaeology, basically. And, and so people will look at the Word of God, and even believers, and say, well, this can't be right. Well, what happens if we find something that talks about all these numbers. You know, a lot of you were just over in Israel, a lot of you have been to Israel, and for the longest time they said that Pontius Pilate was not a real person of history because they had never found his name written anywhere. And so people like, yeah, the New Testament's not reliable. Pontius Pilate, this key figure, not reliable, you can't do it. Until one day, a guy or a gal is out there digging, an archeological dig, and their, their shovel hits this, this stone and they dig it up and it talks about Pontius Pilate. And now all of a sudden, oh, Pontius Pilate is real. Look, the Bible was right here. No, it was always right. You finding the stone did not make it right. Um, it was already right. And so um, this is the kind of thinking that goes into it. But I want you to just think with me um, through this process for a moment. God gave a promise to Abraham that he was going to have descendants as, as much as the sand of the sea, the stars of heaven, more than could be numbered. And yet he didn't have a, a single child. And so a, a miracle was performed to bring the one. And so now you have all of these, this large congregation that's come out of Egypt and if you go back into Exodus, one of the first things we read about what motivates the Egyptians to begin to wipe them out is the increase of their numbers. So here's one of the most powerful nations, certainly in the region, and they are getting concerned because the number of the Israelites are growing so rapidly and they try to start putting to death some of their children because they're having children like crazy. And so they, they, they are not successful at this. They continue to um, have these huge numbers. So Egypt is fearful of their large numbers. The king of Edom will not let Israel pass through the land of Edom because of their large numbers. Balak hires Balaam to curse the children of Israel because their numbers are too large and we cannot win in battle. When Balaam goes up and he observes them from those three different vantage points, he's like, I can't even number a quarter of these people. So <laughs> what you find is that the scripture is full of places, not just in numbers, but in many different places. It's all agreeing with this, that this is the answer to that promise that was given to Abraham. It's like, well, that's impossible. Well, let me ask you this. Is it impossible for a hundred-year-old man and woman to have a son? I think it is. Unless God says, you're going to have a son. And so while you look at this, and you might say, well, this is hard to believe. I think the, the, those that are making that conclusion, they're totally missing the whole point. 
This is amazing. And this is a fulfillment of the promise of God that would not have been expected to have been fulfilled. So I, I think it's far more than just a, uh, you know, a way to accommodate history. I think you're, that, that move is actually, it, it's like it's robbing glory from God. And what he has done. So you will read of this. If you dig into things, you'll hear somebody say that. And they'll say this is hyperbole. Well, okay. So you say, and so you're going to be wrong. But that's the way they, you, you'll find in, in so many of um, you know, other, other people's sermons. They have a problem accepting it because culture has not borne that. History and archaeology have not borne that out. Give it enough time. They'll figure it out. And they'll find out all the time. And if we don't find it out in this lifetime, not a problem. Um, you, can, you can speak to Moses about the counting and say, did you use hyperbole? Was this real? And um, you can find out all about it for yourself. Um, so um, this is the counting, only 1,800 fewer. Um, and the greatest decrease from the first census was among the tribe of Simeon. They decreased by 37,100. Manasseh increased by 20,500. Why did Simeon's tribe decrease so much? We don't know for certain, but if you remember last week, there was one man who was kind of signaled, uh, uh, singled out, not signaled out, singled out um, for judgment of um, Eleazar, um, or Phineas, I forget, I'm sorry, that one of those high priest sons, uh, Phineas, um, and how he um, ended up killing this guy. And we're told that he is from the tribe of, what do you think? Simeon. And so it's, it's interesting to ponder. Um, is a reason why they chose, there's 24,000 that died, that they chose to talk about one. Was he, more, was he representative of kind of that tribe? We can't say definitively, but... It is something that is interesting to ponder. Look at verse, uh, go back a few verses. Verse, um, let's see, where am I? Chapter 26. And um, so let's go to verse 11. Uh, No, let's back up to um, verse 9. The sons of Eliab, chapter 26. The sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram, representatives of the congregation who contended with Moses against Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Nevertheless, verse 11, the children of Korah did not die. So they are counted in the number. And, and I think this is something, it's just a small point, but yet it, I think it has a huge implication that their descendants are going to enter into the promised land and they're going to receive this promise. This is a, a picture of the next, or not a picture, it's the reality of the next generation experiencing the grace of God and not being held accountable for the sins of their fathers. You might want to write down Ezekiel 18 and read that. If that's a theme that interests you, about children not having to suffer the consequences of uh, God's judgment because of the sins of their parents. Ezekiel 18. We're going to come back to this point again in just a little bit, but I just wanted you to see it right there. Um, Not everybody was wiped out um, in that, um, that rebellion. 
So it, it, verses 52 through 65, um, the, the dividing of the land is going to take place. It's going to take place based on it, the size of the tribe. So the need is going to necessitate the, how much land is received. So counting the numbers was pretty important. It's, it's going to help them know how to give the allotment. Um, in verses 57 through 62, the Levites are going to receive no land. The Lord is their inheritance. Um, they serve in the tabernacle at the temple, and they are provided for um, through the offerings that come in. And so um, this is how they will be cared for. <coughs> um, in verses 63 through 65, um, the next generation. So if, if you just, just look over there real quick. Uh, these are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest who numbered the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. But among these, there was not a man of those who's, who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. So they all died. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. So there was not left a man of them except Caleb, the son of Jephna, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So that, that Exodus generation, that wilderness generation, had rebelled against the Lord, um, and they're still going to enter in. So kind of, a, again, that same thing. The, the sons of Korah, that they're going to enter in. They're going to enter into the land. And um, the next generation is going to enter into the land. They're going to receive the promises. And the wilderness generation, they bore the consequences for their sin. They are, because of their unbelief at Kadesh Barnea, they don't get to come in. But God had made an enduring promise to Abraham that his descendants would return after the fourth generation and they would dispossess the inhabitants. It's Genesis 15, 16. They would dispossess the inhabitants of the land of Canaan and that his descendants, Abraham's descendants, would inherit the promised land. The promise was sure, and now they're seconds away, if you will, from walking in and receiving the promises of God. This, these simple little verses, 63 through 65, it speaks of the faithfulness of God's promises. When God says he's going to do something, it's going to happen. You can count on it. You can trust in him. And you may even say, well, you know, again, there is consequences for, for sin, right? I mean, there's, we have to, to deal with those things that we do. But God is faithful to fulfill what he's promised to do. And for us who are in Christ Jesus, we have been given an amazing promise that one day we're going to inherit another land. One day we're going to go into the promised land of heaven. And we're going to receive this because our forerunner, Jesus, has gone before us and he's made a way. He died on the cross. He paid for our sins. He rose from the dead. And now he leads us. He's the first fruits of all that um, are going to be saved and enter in. And you can have a confidence that that's going to happen. Now, you, you may have ups and downs in your walk with the Lord, but the Lord is going to be faithful to the promise to bring you to that place. If you need to repent of something, then repent of it. Do what's right. But if there's a promise to claim, and there is, then claim the promises and walk in the hope and the reality of all that the Lord has given. I mean, there's many promises, right? There's many promises for this life. 
But I, I would say that the promise of being in the presence of the Lord for all of eternity, that is... That is on top of them all. And the Lord is going to be faithful. This was a group of people. If you can take them collectively, not divide it up so much as a, you know, one generation for the next, but collectively with Abraham to this group of people, he's given a promise. Yes, there's been ups and downs and failures and mistakes, and they've They've all been dealt with. They've all had to be repented of or they all have been judged. But in the end, God's going to fulfill that. Which reminds me of Philippians 1.6. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God is going to do that work of bringing you into the, his presence. I, yeah, if you were to map it out, there's days where it's not good and there's days where it's triumphant and the Lord is doing a work in us. So yeah, maybe there is something that you should repent of. Well, repent of it. And don't allow the enemy to, to bring you to the place that says all is lost and he wants nothing more to do with you. You have this promise that he's going to do this. And, and really, it is for us but it is also for the glory of God. The glory of God that he would do a work in a group of people and would save them and finish the work. So it's not just about you. It is about the work of the Lord. Moving to chapter 27, and here is a, a, a section that deals with uh, the daughters of Zelophehad. Um, and they are um, the ones that we're going to see their dad sinned in some way. It doesn't say how. Um, we just know that he didn't sin with those, um, the prostitutes at Bel Peor. But he sinned in some other way, and there was no other son. So what do you do in, in this you know, time? I mean, because gener- you know, a generation would pass from son to son to son and on the belongings and the possessions. So what's going to happen? Well, let's read and find out. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Macher, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And, the, and these were their names. His daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar, the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in the company with Korah, but he died in his own sins. So not the, I said Belpior, not the the sin of, um, of Korah, but he died in his own sin and he had no sins. A son. So what was the sin? I don't know. Maybe it was he was one of the complainers and died with uh, the quail sandwich between his teeth. You know, I, I don't, we don't know exactly what event it was or maybe it was just an individual event. But he died in sin. And so he has no sons, which, you know, there's, it's almost, you can almost feel like there's like, well, I mean, it's the family's fault. He sinned, and so there's no, there's, he wasn't able to live long enough to have sons to get this, so sorry, ladies, you just lose out. And so you can see they're coming. And they're, they're bold in this, too, aren't they? So like, wait a minute, we, we should be able to receive something. Um, and this is not the first time that Moses is going to have been asked to deal with the situation that he doesn't really have a good 
answer four. Look at verse um, four. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the daughters of Zelophehad, speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. Um, if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if he, there's none of them, then who are, go find the nearest kin and they get it. It stays in the family. The blessing of the land is going to stay in the family. And um, this is why it, it's, you know, um, you know, it was such a big deal when uh, Jezebel and uh, Naboth tried to steal the, pro, the, the land that had been allotted to, to this man. It was something that God wanted the inheritance to remain in the family. Um, so he has to seek the Lord, but this isn't the first time he's had to seek the Lord not knowing exactly what the answer was. Remember the guy that was picking up uh, wood sticks on the Sabbath um, and he wasn't a, uh, you know, a a child, a descendant of Israel, Numbers 15, verses 32 through 36. So what do we do with this guy? Like, yeah, you know, you're going to have to stone him, just like if he was an Israelite. Or there's another time when um, it, was, it was time to keep uh, Passover, but um, a family member died. And they, the family had to deal with their deceased relative, um, and, which was not a sin, of course. I mean, it was the right thing to do. But in doing that, they became ceremonially unclean and they were unable to keep the Passover. And then they said, what do we do with this? Because if you didn't keep Passover, you're in trouble. <laughs> so what do we do with this? You know, we got kind of these conflicting commandments here. If you're uh, ceremonially unclean, you can't come in. And if you, are, um, uh, if you don't keep Passover, you, you're in trouble. So he seeks the Lord and he gets the answer. He says, well, let him keep it on, on the next day, and the next day that they could be cleansed. So this is a pattern. And, and it's, I think, important for us to see this, is that when we don't know what to do, we need to seek the Lord. And, and Moses calls upon the Lord and he finds out what should be done. And I just, I want to put this question to you. Is that the kind of zeal you have to find the will and the ways of the Lord? Or is it just like, well, I didn't really know what to do, so I just figured I would do this. Mm, there ought to be a little more um, fear of the Lord in our life than that. It's like, wait a minute, Lord. You know, what do you want to do? And I mean, just a small thing, but I mean, I woke up this morning and I felt, I did not feel good. I didn't feel good last night. I didn't feel good this morning. And I was lying in bed and um, I just said, all right, Lord, I can get up and I can push through this, but I want to push through this and end up just getting super sick. If, you, if you're just trying to tell me just to lie down in bed today and rest and have somebody else take the sermon, then I'll do that. But if you want me to get up, then, you know, just, you know, put it in my mind and my heart to get up. And so, um, 
You know, I just laid in bed for an extra 15 minutes just waiting, and I'm like, you know what, I feel like I just need to get up and, and push through this. And, and I did, and, and the Lord has given me the strength, and I feel, I feel better tonight. But, you know, it's just like, Lord, what do you want me to do in my life? I, I, you know, and what I found myself praying is like, I am your servant, and my time is your time. And whatever you want, that's what I'm going to do. I don't have a Bible verse to turn to for that question in my life. But I do have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. And so do you. And so call upon the Lord. But I, I, I think the bigger question is, do you want to know what God has to say? If you come in for counseling, you often may hear this question. Are you willing to be obedient to the Lord no matter what the consequences are and changes you have to make in your life? It's like, well, I don't know. What are they first? Mm, we're going in a different direction than hearing your problem. We're going to talk about the need to be completely obedient to the Lord because there's no point to talk about this other stuff until you've resolved this thought that I want to hear the voice of the Lord and I will do whatever the Lord wants me to do. Read Psalm 119 in this context and you'll hear the psalmist say something like this. It was good that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. It's good that I went through trials and tribulations and difficulties and hardships because in that low spot in my life, I learned more about your ways and what you required of me. So Lord, thank you for the affliction. Thank you for these difficulties that came into my life. Well, the answer comes, it says, yes, let them have the inheritance. And this is a, this is a great, you know, this is a great moment. And there are so many places in our culture today where it brings charge and accusation against Scripture as it just being a chauvinistic book and not being interested in you know, uh, the well-being of women. And it's just like, those who say that have not read the Bible. They have not read it. They don't understand it. Because if you understood it, the culture and the times and all they're going on, this was, a, this was something special. The Lord is saying, no, let them have it. They, they should be a part of this family. But you know, again, we find this same point that we talked about um, with the sons of Korah. These daughters like, yeah, our dad sinned. Okay, everybody knows that. It must have been pretty well known. This is what I'm thinking. So our dad sinned. Yes, everybody knows that. Uh, but um, shouldn't we have a right to this? And they say, yeah, absolutely you should. So this, this idea is again brought to the front that even when parents are judged for their sins, it does not mean that the, the, the next generation is going to be uh, written out of the plans of the Lord or that they're going to bear the consequences of their parents' sins. I, I mentioned it in our last study. Um, the Bible, this idea of generational curses, it's, it's not there. It's not in the Bible. And I know a passage a lot of you are going to think about, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it later. But, you know, there's like one odd passage in Scripture that everybody hangs this idea of generational curses on it. And yet you have example after example after example where that is not the case. And the most powerful testimony to this is, cursed is the one who hung on a tree. Who hung on a tree? Jesus. He took the curse upon himself. The curse for our sin. For all sin. 
And so if I, if I enter into the, this forgiveness and grace of him and he took the curse for me and I receive his righteousness, then what is this nonsense about generational curses? Does the example of mom and dad have a powerful influence upon the next generation? Absolutely. It's huge. And that is what we see, is one bad set of, of, of choices is being followed from one generation to the next. But if you're living under the idea that you're under some curse, the problem is you feel helpless. And you feel like, what in the world am I going to do? How can I ever get out from underneath this? It's a generational curse. What should I do? Well, what about what Jesus did? Is that not sufficient for whatever? I mean, let's, I don't believe in it. And I can, you know, again, go read Ezekiel 18. And you'll see that the, the, the sins of the father are not going to be judged in the sons and the son, sins of the sons is not going to flow upstream to the fathers. Everyone is responsible for their own decisions. You know, and I don't even think that you or anybody else would be so un, uh, unfair. I mean, I'm sure you can find some, you know, ruthless people, but, but the average person is not going to hold other, you know, the next generation responsible. It's like, well, I know it wasn't you, it was your folks. And so, I mean, <laughs> so if we can do that, why would we think a loving God and gracious God would not do this? So, I, you know, first of all, we use the New Testament to establish doctrine. And New Testament doctrine can be foreshadowed and fulfilled from Old Testament prophecies. And or a principle can be continued to be lived out. But if you don't find it in the New Testament, um, don't go back into the Old Testament. But even on this point, you can't find it when you go back into the Old Testament. Um, and yet there you, can, you can read all kinds of books about it. It is the power of the example of family. So for some of you, why am I emphasizing this? Because I want you to know if you are one that's been walking around thinking, well, my, my dad did this, my granddad did this, and my great-great-grand, this is just what we do. Um, you know, maybe this verse is slightly out of context, but I'm going to use it to make a point. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And so if you are believing a lie that you believe to be true, it can have a powerful influence upon you. You agree with that? If you believe a lie that you think is true, it can have a powerful influence upon you. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there are so many examples of this. I mean, I mean, there are those who believe the lie that if they flew planes into um, you know, buildings in America, that they would immediately be you know, ushered into glory in, in the next life. They believe that to be true, but it was a lie. And it had a powerful impact upon themselves and a lot of other people too. So you need to, we need to think correctly. We need to have a right understanding. And um, so say, learn to say this. Can you please show me in the Bible where it says that? And, uh, and, and if they turn to the Old Testament, it's not immediately discounted. I'm not saying that. That's good. All right, fine. These are the scriptures. Say, so can you show me in the New Testament where that teaching is found? And so if you can't find it in the New Testament, then we, we don't walk that out. And I know that sounds strange to some of you, but let me, let me give you an example. Are you going to go pick up everything that's found in the Old Testament and do it? 
I mean, are you gonna are you gonna go like get together an army and are you gonna go over and start to drive out anybody who's not a Jew out of the, the land of Israel? Or should we do that? Should we start, you know, slaying people for the you're not gonna do that. If you do, you're crazy, you're wrong. I mean, this was a no, this was a different covenant. We're under a, a new covenant. And so we have to look to the New Testament to find out what we are required to do. And this is something that we see brought up over and over again. So shake it off, that bad teaching that you've heard that makes you think that you can never walk in purity in this area of your life or that area of your life or you're always gonna be like that or you're destined to take your life because the generations of people in your family have taken their life and so oh, that's what I'm gonna do. That's a lie. And the enemy will use that you got to just, you can't let that happen. So um, you can see it in the Old Testament. Um, Zelophehad's daughters are not going to be held responsible for their dad's sins. The sons of Korah are not going to be held responsible. The next generation of the children of Israel is not going to be held responsible and kept out of the promised land. So this is often, this is a, a thought that's often found though. I mean, even... Um, John 9, um, there's a blind man and the disciples ask, um, was this sin because of his, his or his parents? He says, neither. the Lord says neither. But you can just see this is a thought that's, that's often um, in the minds of people. So don't let the sins of your parents determine how you will live or what blessings you will be kept back from. Well, in verses 12 through 23, chapter 27 here, Joshua is ordained as the next leader. Um, let's take a look at some of these verses. Now the Lord uh, said to Moses, go up into this Mount um, Abiram and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you've seen it, you also should be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during this strife, of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me, to revere me, to worship me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Mirabah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim and um, Urim. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in. He and all the congregation of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and he laid his hand on him and inaugurated him um, ordained him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So uh, Joshua steps up. He was a man of um, integrity. 
Um, he was faithful to Moses all those years. He did not engage in the worship of the golden calf. He was up halfway on the Mount Sinai waiting for Moses to come down. He gave a good report when others were giving a bad report about the promised land. And he was a man that spent time in the tabernacle, um, at the tent of the tabernacle. Exodus 33:11 says, inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua the son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. That's the guy you want. You want the guy that wants to be where the presence of the Lord is. You want the guy that understands this is where God's presence resides. And so he was God's choice and uh, Moses and the priest knew that this was the right one. So he is, his hands are laid upon him. Um, he was young enough to lead Israel into this next phase of their future. So, um, you know, again, the older generation had, had died. Now he's still older, right? He's still older. Um, but he is also one that's going to be able to see them through the conquest, the div- conquest and uh, the dividing of the land. And... Um, Yet we will find as we journey through the Old Testament, not every leader was a good leader in Israel. I mean, this is the great frustration when you read through the Kings and Chronicles, isn't it? It's like, oh, again? Oh, like one bad king after a bad king after another bad king. Where's the good ones? Not every leader was good. Turn with me over to um, Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22. We get a contrast of two leaders. Their names are Shebna and Eliakim. Shebna, not so good. Eliakim, that's, that's the good leader. But I want to read this. And I think there's an important lesson for us to learn just about leadership and, and then who the ultimate leader is. And that would be Jesus. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house and say, what have you here and whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, And there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office and from the position he will pull you down. So this guy was, you know, he was making a name for himself. And the Lord does not like that. Verse 20. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. So um, Eliakim, the one whom God raises up, as best as I could figure out, Shebna means vigor or strength. So one is kind of, you know, he's all about power, and the other one is the one that God raises up. Verse 21, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and of the house of Judah. He's going to care for him. The key of the house of David, remember this phrase, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. 
I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him, right? He's a peg, so what do you do with pegs? You hang things. They will hang on him, all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity, and from the cups to all the pitchers. So these two guys were the, the stewards of the kingdom, the resources. They were the, guy, they were the treasurers, if you will. And that day, verse 25, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So Shebna was a guy that was trying to promote himself. Eliakim is the one God raises up. This guy is going to go and he's going to take care of the nation. He's going to be a good one. The Lord's going to bless him. And he's going to um, you know, make his, his uh, name glorious. But he says he's going to be like a peg. And everybody is going to lean on this guy. They're going to trust in him. And he's a guy, he's a good leader. And everybody's going to have their hope on this good leader. Aren't you glad we don't put too much hope in our leaders today? If you do, learn your lesson. But anyway, that's for another discussion. So he says, though, in verse 25, the peg is going to be removed. What's that? Good leaders die. Good leaders are not going to always be around. They're there for a time, for a season, and then they go. And then you know, the next person comes along. Will they be a Shebna? Will they be a Eliakim? We don't know. And so throughout Israel's history, they had a, a Moses, they had a Joshua, they had a Shebna, they had an Eliakim. And so there was this constant flow of leaders. Um, Jesus is the, uh, the, the name Joshua. It's the same name, just different languages. And, and our Jesus is never going to fail us. He's always going to be true. Um, he's not going to sin and, and watch that peg snap in half and people be disappointed. He's not going to die. His, his, his throne and his kingdom will never come to an end, even like a great leader. And, and so we can, we can follow the Lord. Our, Jesus is our Eliakim, the one whom God has raised up. But he's different than Eliakim because he won't be a peg that ever snaps in two or is removed. So you need to, we need to learn to trust in him for all things and not to put our hope in a man or a woman. Now, listen, when you have a good godly man or woman that comes by, thank the Lord for them. But understand they're not going to be there forever. Somebody else is going to come along and maybe they'll be good and maybe they'll be bad. But I read in reading this, did anybody think of a passage in Revelation as we read this section? Anybody? Anybody think of Revelation? Turn with me to, well, you, actually, you don't have to turn there. We'll put it up there for you. But it's Revelation 3, 7. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true. Look at this. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. That's a quote from Isaiah 22. So when I say that Jesus is already like him, you can see why. Because this verse is taken and it's applied to him. Now, now follow me with this. God chose the church of Philadelphia to walk through open doors. I'm just going to say those open doors were missionary field and efforts. 
Why did he choose? Why did he choose the church of Philadelphia? It says in that passage, you can go back and check me on this. It says, because you have a little strength. I've chosen you because you're weak. I've chosen you because you don't have a ton of resources to go and do what you have to do. And he says, I've done that. I'm giving you this. But listen, the one who has the key of David, what's that? The treasurer of heaven, Jesus, says, I will open doors and shut doors. I have all the resources to help you walk through doors that you need to walk through, and I will close the doors you don't need to go through. And so we need to learn to follow Jesus and listen to him. He is a, a trustworthy leader that will never fail, he will never die, and when he says, go to this place, and you're like, yeah, but that's like a dangerous place, or yeah, but that's a place where there's, I don't have the resources to get that done. He's like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm asking you to do it, because I have the key of David. Now listen, uh, Eliakim and Shebna had access to a lot of wealth in David's kingdom, but that is nothing compared to the access that our Eliakim has to the resources of heaven. And so we follow him and we trust in him. And um, so I don't know, maybe there's a little venture that God's putting in front of you and he's like stepping out and you're trying to get it all lined up before you do it. I'm not saying don't pray or plan. I, I think you know, we need to be good stewards. But when you've done the good steward part and the Lord's still saying go, now you step out in faith. And you trust him to open and to bring the resources that you need to do this. It'll be a lot of fun, I promise you. If your Christianity is boring, go take a radical step of faith. Now don't just go out and do something crazy. That's different than a radical step of faith. God will have to lead you in that. But if you want to see your faith get exciting, then start, ask, ask God to put something in front of you that is, is way too big for you. It's well beyond your means and your resources. And then step out. The one who has the key of David will open. And here's the good news. And I like this. You know, I have learned to like this about the one who has the key of David. I like that he opens, but I also like that he shuts. Have you ever prayed something like this? Lord, I want to go through this, but if you shut the door, I'm fine with it. And it's like it shuts, it shuts down. I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. I'm so glad I didn't walk through that. Lord, thank you that you shut that door. That was not your will. Thank you. Um, so it, it's, 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 it's there's safety in this as well. There's safety for the resources, but there's also safety that he's going to keep you out of trouble as you follow him. Well, moving on back into uh, Numbers, chapters 28 and 29. And let me just kind of circle back. So Joshua, Joshua is stepping in, a good leader. Good leaders come and go. Um, and we've got a great, perfect leader in Jesus. So chapters 28 and 29, they remind Israel of the importance of maintaining their yearly calendar of worship. I am not going to spend much time on this because we've dealt with it in a couple of places already as we've been going through, um, especially in Leviticus. But um, as you go through this chapter, um, in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 28, he's going to say, these are the daily sacrifices that you have to make. In verses 9 through 10, here's the weekly Sabbath sacrifices that you have to offer up. In verses 11 through 15, here are the monthly sacrifices you have to offer up. 
And then in chapter 28, verse 16, into chapter 29, here are the yearly feasts you need to keep and the um, associated sacrifices. So in verse 16, we are first introduced, of chapter 28, we are first introduced to the Passover. And um, he says, this is it. Now the Passover, think of Exodus 12. Um, This was the beginning of the religious calendar. Um, This was to uh, commemorate the deliverance that God gave them um, from the, the death plague that hit the land and how where the blood of the lamb was, death passed over. Of course, Jesus is our Passover lamb. We are under his blood and the Passover is death passes over us and we have the hope of eternal life if we're under the blood of Jesus. So these all look forward to the Lord. Um, and then this, this kind of goes straight into uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you had Passover one day and the very next day was seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it was like a, you know, eight days. Um, of, um, of feasting. And Feast of Unleavened Bread was um, removing all leaven from the diet. And so, of course, Jesus removed the leaven as he went to the cross as our Passover lamb. Cha- verse 26 um, of chapter 28, we have the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of, Pass- uh, of Pentecost. Um, and don't, verse 26 says, also on the day of first fruits. Don't confuse that with the feast of first fruits, which is really easy to do. Um, this is the feast of weeks, um, not the feast of first fruits, which was the day after, uh, the first Sabbath after um, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which fell on Sunday and the day Jesus arose. But this is the feast of week or, or the feast of Pentecost. Um, it was offered um, uh, about 49, 50 days after um, the uh, 50 days after uh, the feast of uh, unleavened bread, and they would um, they would come in and they would celebrate the harvest. But in Acts chapter two, this is the birth of the church, and the Lord poured out His Holy Spirit on the church. So these are all foreshadowing events. In chapter 29, verse one, you have the feast of trumpets. Um, we don't know what this was about so much. This was kind of this is one that there's not a lot of details. Um, it's commonly agree, agreed that the trumpets were used to announce gatherings and victories. So not a lot of details uh, beyond that. But it's thought that this feast may be associated with the second coming of Christ, and you'll see why. Um, so this is the Feast of Trumpets there in chapter 21. Let me just read it. Uh, chapter 29, verse 1. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. For, for you, it is a day of blowing the trumpets. Okay. Chapter 24, uh, in, uh, 29 through 31, in Matthew reads like this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall uh, from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a, what? A trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, which is a quote, I think, from Isaiah chapter 14, by the way, referring to the Israel being regathered. This is not a reference to the rapture. So 
Um, so this is kind of what we, we don't, we can't say definitively like we can with the Passover or unleavened bread. Um, this may end up being associated with the second coming of the Lord. Uh, chapter 29, verse 7, back in Numbers, is the Day of Atonement. We've talked a lot about this in our Sunday morning study. It was a day the nation had their sins atoned for. Um, and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And that was that one. Then, lastly, there was, in chapter 29, 12 through 38, the Feast of Tabernacle, or Booths. And this was a, one of the three mandatory feasts. This was a feast that remembered how God took care of them in the wilderness wandering. So they would sit up lean-tos outside, little, little shelters, and they would um, look up through the, the shelter and be outside camping at night. Why are we outside tonight? Oh, let me tell you kids why we're outside tonight. Our, our forefathers, they lived outside all the time when they were in the wilderness, and God took care of them. Do you know how he took care of them? He gave them manna, he gave them water, and so they would have a chance to remember. Now, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, tells us during, during the millennial reign of Christ um, that this is going to be a feast that is kept. That's interesting. Uh, I don't have a lot of answers for you. It's just going to be there, and it'll make sense when it happens, but it's going to look back at the faithfulness of God still. So some of these calendar events are still going to be on the calendar during the millennial reign. So as you go through this, sec this chapter, um, two chapters, and all of these daily, weekly, monthly, um, yearly events, it gives you the number of animals to be sacrificed, which comes to a total of 295. 14 goats, 81 bulls, 21 rams, 179 lambs. And that does not account for the free will offerings, nor does it count for the lambs that were slaughtered on uh, Passover, which Josephus gives us a number of 256,000 in his day. So you have a lot of animals, a lot of bloodshed. And we, we read in Colossians 2, 16 through 17, let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are, shadow, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance of, is of Christ. So if you've been here on Sunday morning, you've heard this verse 10 times. Um, and these, all of this, this sacrificing, it was a shadow. They were being trained in their minds that when you worship Something dies and blood is shed. And that's exactly the reality in Christ. Someone died and his blood was shed. They were being prepared to understand the necessity for shed blood. Even in Matthew 121, um, the angel says and, uh, of Jesus, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Any Jew knew with all of this blood shedding that it took the shedding of blood for sins to be forgiven. And so this was something. Even when John announced uh, Jesus, um, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So th this was a concept when, when the angel spoke about sins being forgiven or Joshua says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They lived it out every day of their life. They knew this, and so it was all looking forward to what Jesus would do. And um, yeah, I'm not going to try and go uh, much further. I didn't think I'd get through all this.
but I got some awesome things to tell you about it. It's really, really good stuff. But if I do this, I'm going to end up rushing through it, and there's just too much. So the Levitical system prepared Israel for Jesus. The Levitical system of shadows prepared them for the substance of Christ. And um, I gotta just say, I'm so glad to be teaching the book of Hebrews while we're going through these Old Testament books on Wednesday night, because it just, it, it just helps it all fit together so well. So Jesus is the, is the answer. He is a faithful leader. He is the one we can trust. He is taking care of our sin. And he has removed it. And yes, we're not perfect. And we have ups and downs in our life. But God is going to finish the work that he began in you. And yes, it is about you, but it's about his glory too. It's about what he invested in the process. You know, if you invest a lot of time, energy, or money into something, and even though there are challenges with it, you, we will say things like this. Well, I've got too much into this now to back out. Well, what do you think the father thinks about that? When he looks at you, how much does he have invested in you? It's his son and him dying on the cross. That's his investment. He's not going to pull out quickly and run because it cost him too much. So, again, he who began a good work in you is going to complete it until the day of Christ. Now, again, you've got, if repentance is in order, then repent. But once you've done that, the next thing that's in order is to believe in the promises of God and to receive them, and he's going to complete it. If he's going to take this group of people that rebelled so heavily against him in so many different ways and is going to bring them into the land um, because of a promise that he made through uh, to Abraham, you can be certain that the promise that has come through Jesus is going to be even more certain and more sure. So it'll be a great day when we all are gathered together in the presence of the Lord into that new land that he has prepared for us. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your word and your truth. It's so rich, Lord. There's so much for us to, to squeeze out here. And these Old Testament passages that maybe we often just would pass over, but Lord, thank you that you've given us the opportunity to slow down. And we just want to say, Lord, we love the way you have put this book together the shadows and the substance, the, the history, the learning, and the admonitions. And so, Lord, we know that um, you are a faithful God. You are the same God that was faithful to Israel, and you're going to be the same God that is faithful to us. And so, Lord, help us tonight. Would I pray for any of my brothers and sisters that maybe have, have been walking under the oh, the slavery of just thinking that they cannot live a righteous life because of what family they come from them or there's no hope of salvation because of what family. Lord, may we learn in here tonight that, Lord, um, um, each person um, you deal with as an individual and we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for your grace. So I pray you would liberate people. I pray you would set them free with the knowledge of your truth. Your truth sets us free. And so whom is... Is free is free indeed. So Lord, would you would you just loosen some of these uh, 
false beliefs and understandings that maybe we've accumulated as we've walked through this life. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.